Well, hiking and uh, the great outdoors was uh, was very much a part of my childhood experience. A lot of this came from my dad, who loved adventure. He loved going on treks, and as a result of that, one of the things that I have had the opportunity of doing, especially when as a young a younger kid, uh, was visiting a number of the national parks. So, like you name it, there's a really good chance that I maybe have been to it. The Rockies, the Tetons, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Arches National Park, Yosemite, Glacier. I mean, I could keep going, right? So I've done a lot of the stuff out west before. And of course, you go on hikes, you go on these quests and adventures to experience the beauty of what lies at the end, right? Like, especially you want to go through what is maybe a grueling, you know, 10-mile hike to see the vista, right? You want to see, get get to the end. Uh, And so one of the last times I was out, with our family out west in Colorado, my oldest daughter was about one years old at the time. We didn't take a hike, but we took a, a Jeep ride up in the mountains of Colorado. And uh, we journeyed real high into the mountains. Uh, we kind of endured what was thinner air. So I remember walking up a little trail at once we got out of the Jeep and it was like close to 12,000 feet. And I'm like, oh, I'm breathing a little a little heavier here. Uh, and, then, and then there were times where the Jeep, literally we would slide on these roads that were so narrow, we're on one side, it, you would just see a dramatic drop of hundreds of feet, and then, then the other side was a sheet of ice uh, that you could literally touch with your hand. And why would we do this? Because if you do this to experience the beauty of the views. Now, of course, the journey is part of the appeal, and perhaps some of you are like, ah, oh, it's the best part. But let's be honest, like all of us want to get to the top, right? The view of, and, and really the satisfaction of getting to the top is what is ultimately rewarding. And I think in many respects, this is very much the appeal of being here even at a university at IU and of seeking an education. It's in order to get to the top where the view is. Education is very much for many of you a means to an end, to experience the view, ultimately to be happy, right? And this is what all of us, you, myself included, this is what we've been told our whole lives. And you maybe even have seen these like on your uh, elementary school like walls, Education is power. Knowledge is power. Education gets you where you want to be. Education fulfills your dream. Just take a little bit of a tour with me on IU's website. It does not take you long to get this picture, okay? Their most recent slogan is, find your spark. So go find your spark, students. Here's what they go on to say. At Indiana University, you're home. This is where your journey begins. You'll discover opportunities beyond your wildest dreams and find inspiration at every breathtaking turn. See for yourself, there's nothing like IU. Doesn't this sound kind of familiar? Like the preacher on a quest? Now look, I love IU, okay? I graduated from here, love it. But do you hear a little bit of what the university is offering you? It's saying this is the place where you are going to find meaning. This is the place where you're going to get inspiration. You're going to be inspired. This is the stuff of dreams. This is where you're going to actually find a home. The spark that you and I are looking for, that you want, that you need, you can get it. Right? And this quest for meaning uh, in the form of education, the seeking of wisdom and of knowledge is not new, right? In fact, we see that this is exactly what we see in our passage that our preacher sought this very same thing. And this, he tells us, is actually where his journey begins. Now, it goes to a lot of other areas that we're going to trickle into, especially next week in chapter 2. But listen to the way the verse 13 starts. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom 
all that is done under heaven. And then in verse 16, he talks about how much he actually gained from this. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. They're implying like he, he's one of the kings that came after. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. But the interesting thing is, he actually kind of like reveals the end of his journey right at the beginning. His conclusion right from the start of the sermon, he kind of reveals in sort of a very explicit way. Look at verse 13 and 14, the rest of 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I've been on this journey, y'all. I've done this thing, and it's not all it's cracked up to believe. To, 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 it's not all it's cracked up to be. And I believe that we can learn a thing or two from the preacher friend, our preacher friend, as a result of his own experience. Because how often do we treat education, do we treat the gaining of knowledge, the puffing up of our minds, frankly, as our savior, right? Education is your savior. Our culture perpetuates very much this narrative. But what the preacher makes clear is that the search for meaning and wisdom and knowledge will not satisfy. It will not give you what you want and ultimately what you need. Gaining wisdom and knowledge, as good as these things can be and are still worth pursuing, by the way. We'll get more to that as time goes on. It will not. In fact, it cannot give you what you most want. And so something far better, something superior must actually save you and me. And I believe that honestly, a lot of us instinctively knows this in our heart of hearts. We don't want to admit it, but especially when the message that we get from influential voices, whether that could be parents or other people or even institutions, is that uh, education is indeed our savior. But I think a lot of our uh, sort of in our heart of hearts knows this kind of not to be true. And so I want to walk through a little bit of what it is that the, the, um, the preacher discovers, what is true, and how the preacher's search, his quest, is really very relatable to us. And then, honestly, what to do with that. So those are the two places we're going to go just very quickly tonight. But the quest that our preacher goes on to sort of make wisdom and knowledge like uh, the crux of his meaning in life, his purpose, this kind of makes sense to us, right? Because education and kind of the gaining of knowledge very much has an appeal. Uh, think about um, the, the King Solomon. So some of you may not know this story, and that's okay. But uh, earlier in the scriptures, uh, King Solomon is the second king of Israel, and God uh, told Solomon to ask for anything. And as author uh, Phil Riken says, rather than asking for money or fame, which is what he could have done, King Solomon asked for wisdom to govern the people of God as their king. And so he goes on, uh, Phil Riken, to say he devoted his life to learning. He's kind of your sort of ancient day Renaissance man. He was seeking to uh, the very best of human thought. And this very much goes along with, just think about I use um, uh, their seal. So there's a Latin phrase on there. Some of you, does anybody know what that Latin phrase is? Anybody? Anybody? Which says what? Light and truth. And right, there's much to be commended about the pursuit of truth, right? The pursuit of knowledge and of wisdom. Living in God's world, if you uh, really believe that God is the creator, we're, this breeds a curiosity, right? And, and sort of a thirst for knowledge is good. It's not a bad thing. 
And yet listen to the words of author David Gibson. Listen to these words. We are sure education can save us from our ills and place us on the road to happiness. The preacher shows us that this particular pursuit is as old as the hills. Get into the best schools, study hard, achieve the best results, learn and learn and learn, get up the ladder and you'll go far. That's what you're told. Aim at the top, the sun will shine, join the academic professionals and you will surely soar on the new heights of your knowledge. It's exactly what we heard on the website just a minute ago that I read. It is not so, says the preacher. The more I knew, the sadder I became. That's depressing. So what I want to walk through now is a little bit of the conclusions that he came to, right? There's an appeal to gaining education, gaining knowledge and wisdom. But notice what happens right away in verse 13. I read this verse already. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What is he describing here? Working is hard. And this has been the case since the fall of mankind, where sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3. The consequences of which we're told are a few different things. The ground is cursed. There's now pain in the world. There are now thorns and thistles when we work the ground. There's sweat. And so the process itself is not smooth sailing. And so those of you, for an example, those of you who do research know a little bit about that, right? Not smooth sailing. Some of you who are in music know this. Not always smooth sailing. Those of you who are in business know, guess what? Your business can fail, right? Failure happens all the time around us. We know this instinctively. And so we know in many ways this kind of unhappiness that goes even with the process that he describes here. But he goes on to describe as well education's emptiness. That there is this vanity. This is the idea, again, think of like on a cold winter's day where your breath kind of comes out and you see it, but then it disappears. And you're striving to try to grasp that thing, but it leaves you empty. Verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it's vanity. There's an emptiness. It's striving after the wind. And with that then also comes a futility. Look at verse 15 with me. This is kind of a, a sort of poetic phrase, by the way. Um, and which is why it kind of looks different in the text. And he says this, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, what he's saying is, is when you find something crooked in life that, that seems off, it's really difficult and oftentimes we fail to fix it. And you can't just sort of make something happen that just won't happen. He even, as we're told, went to look at foolishness. So the opposite of wisdom, this is what happens in verse 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. In other words, he was trying to discern a sense of morality, of right and of wrong. And this, guess what, also left him with an utter futility. And then there's the pain that goes with this. This is what verse 18 is describing. For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, some of you are like, I, I mean, I, I don't feel like, uh, I, I feel like whenever I'm, you know, in school, I'm getting knowledge. I, I, don't, I don't feel pain. Listen to Phil Riken, the way he describes this. And I think maybe this will make a little sense to you. Children often wish they knew about some of the things their parents talk about. Eventually, we get older and supposedly wiser, but by then, we actually wish we could go back into the innocence of childhood. This is why people say that ignorance is bliss. The more we know about things, the more trouble it brings. 
And I think you all instinctively understand this, right? The older that you get, and I certainly experience this, the older you get, the more that you kind of know, the more understanding of the brokenness of this world that you get is hard. There's a weight that goes with that. And that's what he's describing here. A pain and ultimately then a powerlessness. Because here's the reality is you all as people who are made in God's image, guess what? You are designed just like God to have agency. Now, this may satisfy for a time, right? We have the ability to make and create. But the preacher, what he's saying here is it does not sustain you for the long haul and it cannot. Again, listen to the words of Phil Riken. And this is kind of, he's kind of talking about verse 15 that I just mentioned a minute ago. He says, life is like an account that refuses to balance. We can tell that something is missing, but we cannot figure out what it is. And even when we make an adjustment to get everything to balance, deep down, we know that we're fudging the figures. So it was for the preacher. His quest failed. Human wisdom could not give him the answer to the meaning of life. I'm guessing that for some of you, um, the idea of being something like an author, a published author or a publisher or uh, a political theorist. So maybe some of you are in poli sci or being an influencing society as a civil servant or taking up, uh, you know, doing, doing, being a part of a think tank for the rest of your life. You're like, I mean, that's, that's amazing. Some of you are like, I'd never want to do that in my life. Well, regardless, whatever your aspiration is, uh, maybe what I just described is one of them. Uh, you, Leonard Wolf. Uh, some of you may know that name, some of you may not know. The husband of well-known author Virginia Woolf. Uh, he was just as I described to you. So he wrote more than 20 books on literature, on politics, on economics. He helped form what became a very influential group of writers and of artists and of philosophers called the Bloomsbury Group, if you've heard of that at all. And yet, here's what he says about his life and work towards the end of his life that Phil Riken talks about in his book. Here's what he says. I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather shameful confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Highly successful guy gets to the end of his career and he's like, yeah, I might as well just been playing ping pong. Here's, I think, the point, even in that sharing that story, because I think, again, some of you instinctively know this or feel this, is education, the pursuit of this kind of wisdom and knowledge, it cannot save you. Now, for some of you, hearing this totally freaks you out. And I want to acknowledge that. And that's understandable because guess what? You're a student at a university. But I also want to say that part of the reason for that too, that some of the reason this may freak you out, is because you are actually putting everything into your studies. Like when it says in verse 13, as Solomon said, or as the preacher said, I applied my heart to seek and search out. You're like, yeah, that's me. I give my whole life to my field of study. And so if you're there, a few things, a few thoughts that I want to share with you. 
One that this passage kind of gets to us is you need to honestly face the limitations of the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, whatever that may be for you. There are good things that you are doing. This is not to not affirm that. Again, more on this in future weeks. Don't hear what I'm not saying or what the scriptures are not saying. But the moment that we take these things and make them, as author and pastor Tim Keller says, ultimate things, we give them the weight that they cannot carry, right? Now, much of your drivenness also, and this is worth saying, that for some of you, like again, this kind of freaks you out, much of your drivenness is also one out of fear, right? It's out of a fear, particularly of mediocrity, Because I think, I really do believe this, that the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is like the close sibling of the pursuit of achievement. They kind of go hand in hand, right? Pursuing knowledge, pursuing success. They go together. And so there's all this pressure for y'all as students to be curators of your own existence and for meaning. And for you as a student then, this means coming in the pursuit of knowledge and of success. And to do so at all costs. Right? I mean, that's exactly what, again, the webpage on IU is wanting you to do is to sort of create your own story of meaning. And that comes then through knowledge and success. But the second thing I want to say to all of us then, regardless of where you fall, is to encourage you towards a posture of honesty with yourself. So first of all, face the fact that you cannot know everything. You never will. Just think about the number of books in a single library, right? You can never know it all. And even if you did have that ability, it still would not be enough. And so one of the things I think that this encourages us to is not only that place of honesty, but as a result of that is to to embrace your creatureliness. Because here's what I mean by that. One of the big issues at the fall of mankind, the entrance of sin into the world in Genesis 3, is that of the man and the woman subverting authority and power. That is to say, they had this thirst, this hunger, and this desire to be in the place of God, to be the one in control. Think about this. Think about the name of the tree that Adam and Eve went after. You ever thought about this? It's called the tree of what? the knowledge of good and evil. Guess what? They got it. And we got it. We were not designed to bear that weight. And so an aspect of regaining your humanity is actually being honest with the fact that you are a creature and you belong to another. So that's the first thing I want to say. So what's true? Education, wisdom, knowledge, The pursuit of these things from a human standpoint will not save you. Okay, now, what do we do? So what do we do with this? Well, what I want to encourage us towards is that there is a superior wisdom uh, compared to that of the world. Now, interestingly, the preacher's first mention of God comes in a very weird way. I don't know if you noticed this. First, last week, God was never mentioned. Okay, now verse 13. Let me read this verse for you. The second half. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Okay, that maybe makes you a little uncomfortable. Makes me a little uncomfortable. Okay, so on the one hand, the preacher is saying, there's not only disappointment in the pursuit of wisdom, but now this leads to, hey, guess what? I'm disappointed in you, God, because you're the one who gave this to me. 
the preacher recognizes God's sovereignty, but on the other hand, he's kind of upset. Like, it is an unhappy business that God has given to us. But what I want to help you articulate is that life in a fallen, sinful world that God created is hard and confounding. And that's what, again, he's acknowledging. And so on one level, there there is a sense uh, that we actually need to own that you will not understand all that has happened, is happening now, or will happen in the future. And so part of actually looking higher is an acknowledgement that God is sovereign. Like that is the starting place. And so even while he kind of expresses some level of like, yeah, I'm kind of not really happy, not only with my pursuit, but even with the God who allowed all this to happen. He still acknowledges that God is there. He acknowledges that this God is sovereign. And that true wisdom cannot be found in a fallen world with fallen humans. We have to look higher. And that's where now I'm going to bring you to a couple of the passages that are kind of not explicitly in our text. But in order to help us sort of look higher, in order to kind of begin the trajectory of where the preacher continues to go and ultimately lands on in chapter 12. But listen to the prophet Jeremiah. And this, by the way, was actually a verse quoted in one of the songs that we just sang. So, great job, Bren. Um, Jeremiah 9, listen to this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. That is, the pursuit of human wisdom is not where it's at. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. In other words, the prophet Jeremiah is saying true wisdom and therefore meaning in life is connected to a relationship with the creator. In other words, you and I have to look higher than where we're looking. But you may be like, well, what about what the preacher just said? He just talked about how God, okay, he's in control. Great, we're looking higher. But is he good? Like if he's in control of this, like can he be trusted? This is where then I want to point you to the fact that the wisdom of God is actually foolishness to the world, but it is ultimately revealing that God not only is good and can be trusted, but that he's loving. Because you see, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 1, and this is where we're going to go to kind of close our time out, is see, he goes to the fact that the wisdom of God is found in a person who is wholly like us, who, by the way, can relate to the struggle of living in a world like we do, but also one who is wholly unlike us. So listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 1, or you can flip there if you want. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the one who was wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Okay, this is very much like what Solomon was just saying in Ecclesiastes. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, you can't meet God through human wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And what is it that Paul and his followers were preaching? He says it in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is Paul getting at? He's saying the wisdom of God, the something higher that we need is the person and work of Jesus. That's who it is. He's bringing all of these things together in this passage. Listen again to Phil Riken. This might be helpful to kind of continue to flesh this out. He says, God does not leave us in despair. At the end of all our questing, he comes to find us 
That is to say, he comes down to us in the person of his own son, Jesus Christ, whom the Bible describes, Paul describes as the wisdom of God. If we follow Jesus and his wisdom, we will not keep trying to bend what is crooked back to our own purpose, but will humbly submit to the way God wants things to be, just like Jesus did when he went to the cross and died for our sins. You see, God coming in the flesh to die is utter foolishness to the world. Of course it is. Why why would the God, the creator of the universe, come and become one like us and then die? And yet, if you remember back last semester, if you were here with us, we were studying the book of Acts. And in Acts 2, in one of Peter's sermons, what does he say? That God in his wisdom planned all of this from the beginning. He planned to bring salvation that we couldn't, the salvation that the gaining of knowledge and wisdom cannot deliver. And how did he do this? By becoming one of us and then doing this through his death. It is Christ crucified. In order that he might free us from our meaningless quest of making ourselves our own savior. You see, that's exactly what is so foolish and yet so wise is that his very death that looks absurd to the world is the very thing that brings you salvation from yourself. It's thick with irony. And then ultimately this was done, of course, and sealed and promised with the resurrection. Let me end with this story. I feel like I'm channeling Will, old Will last, last year. Lord of the Rings. Everyone thinks Gandalf is dead. Listen to these words. But Sam lay back and started with open mouth and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy. He could not answer and at last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What happened to the world, Gandalf? A great shadow has departed, he says. And then he laughed. And listen to this. The sound was like music or water in a parched land. As he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. Why is it that the Lord of the Rings and other stories like this like hit us at our core? Here's why, why I think. Because you long for true contentment, for true meaning, for happiness. This exists within all of us. And what the author, what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying is education can't be that. The pursuit of this knowledge and wisdom can't be that. You're never going to know enough. And so I love the way that Phil Riken kind of concludes this portion of this part of this commentary that he writes. He says, We need to be content to leave the final calculations to God. We need to be content to leave the final calculations to God. Now, some of us still doubt and question, and we want to pursue, and we want to try to succeed because we feel like we have to do it. Or we question God. We're like, I don't know if this God is good enough for me. But that's why stories like this with Gandalf, why we need them and why they're so important, and why ultimately the resurrection matters is because Jesus promises new life. In his wisdom, God allowed Jesus to die, but that was not the end. In fact, it was only the beginning. 
And so the reason that you have hope, the reason that you can be content to leave the final calculations to God is guess why? Because just as Christ has been raised, so too if your trust is in him, you will be raised and all will be made new one day. So that's the hope that we live in. That even in the midst of the fact that the world wants you to find in this world a savior in what you pursue and what knowledge you gain, the scriptures tell us it's not going to be there. But it's not for naught. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Let me pray for us. God, not only do we see all around us the pursuit of this knowledge and of wisdom, of human wisdom, but we also see the cynicism that goes right along with the constant failures and disappointments of the world. And I know that all of us feel that, all of us experience it, all of us participate in it. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would not leave here as hopeless, but that we would leave here, yes, as honest with the realities of the emptiness, the futility, the powerlessness that we have in this world, and yet that we would leave with great hope, knowing that there is a wisdom that is beyond this world, but that actually came down to meet us. And that came in the person and work and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Lord, I pray that for each person here, regardless of whether where they are, that you would help them to find significance and meaning and happiness in you and to know that you can be trusted because just as christ came that you are indeed coming again to make all things new impress this upon our hearts lord we pray amen